he, he said he raised objections to these programs and to the uh, lack of warrants for some of these this collection and was ignored. True, false? Uh, minimally true. He, he uh, well, he says he had a lot of conversations at work, including with supervisors. Uh, those conversations are not recorded. I'm not shocked that they're not recorded. If I were um, in the NSA and uh, some guy had come up to me and talked about how worried and concerned and uh, and uh, unhappy he was with a lot of what was going on around us, and I had not reported that, and then it later turned out that that guy is at Snowden, I'm not sure I'd be eager to volunteer it. Episode 318 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family members, long suffering though they are, as they listen to this while we're recording in lockdown, uh, or the pets that will be interrupting to express their own views. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing, this is going to be an, a Good interview. Uh, Bart Gelman, who's an author and journalist, uh, uh, most recently famous uh, as a journalist for uh, handling many of the materials that were released by Edward Snowden, writing a lot of Washington Post articles uh, about those. And he has talked about that experience and uh, other issues in Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, just out. Uh, when did it come out, Bart? It has been uh, about 10 days. Okay. And uh, is it a bestseller yet? You know what? I haven't got sales figures yet. I okay. get the impression that it's doing okay. Good. Good. Well, congratulations. I know that the, 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 uh, as uh, many authors have said, it's uh, uh, not that they like writing, they like having written. So congratulations on having written. Yep. Okay. And uh, for our news roundup, we've got uh, Evelyn Dweck, uh, chosen uh, weeks ago, but uh, uh, President Trump, uh, hearing she was going to be on the Cyber Law podcast, uh, obligingly released his uh, executive order on Section 230, where Evelyn is a recognized expert. Uh, so Evelyn is a lecturer on law and an SJD candidate at Harvard Law School, uh, also affiliated with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Evelyn, and welcome. Thank you very much. It was very considerate of the president, that's for sure. Yes, exactly. Uh, also joining us, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department uh, and the National Security Council. Nate, good to have you. Always good to be here. Thanks, Stuart. Okay. And uh, uh, a fan favorite, Nick Weaver, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. Nick, great to have you back. Okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Uh, well, we might as well start with uh, uh, the story that uh, uh, President Trump fed us for Evelyn, uh, uh, which is his executive order on Section 230. And I'd, I'd like to try to divide this up because uh, there are hundreds of articles saying, well, it's, it's not going to work. It's dumb. Um, and I, 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 I want to talk about that. Uh, but I also want to talk about the ideas that are in it, which I think are, are uh, not as uh, um, easily dismissed, uh, uh, which is, if I could summarize it briefly, it says, um, we are going to 
well, let's start with what Section 230 does. Section 230 has two basic elements. Um, one, it says that uh, um, if you run a, a social uh, uh, media platform, uh, uh, you can't be held liable for the views expressed by others. You're not a publisher of those people's views. And then in a second and less attract, less, less uh, widely covered uh, provision, it says, and you can't be sued for your decision not to publish parts of uh, your user uh, base's contribution uh, because you find them uh, um, uh, objectionable in some fashion. Uh, uh, and it mostly revolves around sex and violence and the like. Uh, uh, and as long as you act in good faith in refusing to publish things, you can't be held liable for that those decisions either. Um, what the president obviously objects to is not so much what uh, uh, Twitter in particular has published as what it is doing with the things he proposes to publish. It's increasingly subjecting his tweets to uh, restrictions of one sort or another. And so this executive order, not surprisingly, focuses on um, when you can be sued for uh, taking things down or otherwise suppressing speech. Uh, and the broad element of the executive order is it says, uh, uh, I, Essentially, in our in in the president's view, uh, in good faith means that you have to uh, avoid deceptive or pretextual or other actions that are inconsistent with your terms of service, uh, or a failure to provide adequate notice and explanation and a meaningful opportunity to be to be heard uh, when you're taking uh, content down, um, and. Uh, having sort of said, I want to put that gloss on the meaning of good faith, he asks the um, FCC indirectly, but he asks the FCC to rule on uh, that and a variety of other issues, but I think that's the central uh, point. And then he says the FTC should also uh, uh, look closely at whether uh, uh, large online platforms uh, are engaged in unfair or deceptive practices, again, focusing on whether they are living up to the speech restrictions that they have uh, announced. Um, and so that's, broadly speaking, there's more in it, and there's a lot of um, uh, tub thumping as well. Um, but to my mind, those ideas, the idea that we ought to uh, address the problem of speech suppression by large platforms uh, uh, by requiring them to explain exactly what their standards are, to live by those standards, uh, and perhaps to actually explain themselves when they take stuff down. That, I have to say, I think that's a pretty reasonable approach to what I think is a problem that almost anybody would acknowledge, which is that uh, um, all of our speech now is going through two or three large companies. And if they choose not to let us speak, we're more or less mute. Uh, and if you don't like that, and I, I don't think you have to be a 
uh, uh, right winger and not to like it. Um, uh, the question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and uh, uh, and so my first question, and maybe I'll direct direct this to Nate, is if you don't feel comfortable with the role that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube play in our national conversation, um, what would you do other than trying to define good faith in terms of transparency? Well, I think first you have to start with facts and and you know they've been largely devoid from this debate for quite some time now. Um, in terms of what's actually happening on these platforms. And, you know, it, from my perspective, at least, you, you repeatedly have conservatives decrying bias. And, and, um, and uh, from the best I can tell, they're doing pretty well on these platforms. And, you know, but I they think might be doing better if, if anything, they weren't subject to bias, right? They, they, well, we, we don't know how they how well they do. That, that I think, tell us whether they're I think biased. well, largely what their their claims of bias are grounded in two things. One is that sometimes their content is taken down or they're banned from some of these platforms for violating the terms of service. And when that happens, you don't often see them come back and demonstrate that what they posted was not a violation of the terms, but instead decrying the fact that conservatives are disproportionately impacted by things like um, bans on promoting or, or inciting violence. And to me, that's not a defense. And if anything, what we see repeatedly um, is that what, what is happening is that to the extent these things are not being enforced even handedly, conservatives are often benefiting from it. You see a lot of content remaining up that arguably violates those terms. Uh, of service. Well, on both and, sides. So I, 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 surely that's it, that if, 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 if we're judging these by what they leave up, then uh, uh, everybody is a winner because they, they, they don't effectively <laughs> police all of this. Uh, sure. But, but that's the danger in asking them to, to aggressively police this, right? Is they're going to get results that they don't actually want. And, and I think to me, this comes down to to the fact, and you'll, you'll hear me come back to this repeatedly probably throughout today's discussion of several news items, is that they want the controversy. They don't want the solutions. They're not interested so, in solutions. Let's, they let's, want to stoke outrage here. Fine. So, put, put, put that aside. I think that there is – do you think that uh, the New York Times leans left? Their editorial page does. No, no. no sure. they're, they're reporting. Their they're, they're news judgment – the, the the way they frame stories, the stories that they promote, do you think that they are leaning left in that? No. Okay, so I, I will never it. persuade you. Because <laughs> it's, it, to me, it's, it's, it's quite obvious that they lean left. Uh, I, and uh, in, in not... You know they don't make up facts to, to make uh, uh, the left happy, but uh, they uh, they are susceptible, more susceptible to pressure from the left. They are not reflective of where the country is. They want to pull the country to the left with their coverage. Uh, and if I can't persuade you of that, uh, then I don't think I can persuade you uh, in this context where the data is less um, 
uh, less available. We can all read the New York Times. We cannot see all of the takedown decisions. Uh, so yeah. I, I, but I'm we can see a lot of the non-takedown decisions. And so a good look is Bellingcat's recent report on the Boogaloo phenomenon in Facebook. And that's very dangerous. That's clearly against Facebook's terms of service, but they haven't succeeded in attacking that uh, and th these are radicalization people who are, who are right at the edge of advocating uh, uh, open military civil war inside the United States. Yep. And and they are they are trying to to thread just you know to to tiptoe just along the line with chalk on their cleats. Uh, uh, and your view is they they everybody knows what they're doing. They should be shut down. Uh, and Facebook has taken which you know understandably but uh, awkwardly taken the position. No, we have to be very we have to be very precise in how we enforce these rules. Otherwise, we'll be accused of bias in enforcement which is the, the way most of the accusations go. They, they say, yes, we understand you have a rule. You just apply it much more aggressively to one side of the debate than the other. Okay, so I think this is, this is not an answerable question today, I think. Uh, to my mind, it's pretty obvious that uh, um, when you look at the politics of the people who are in charge of these uh, uh, decisions, they all are way to the left of the country. Uh, uh, who was just on the phone with uh, Trump yesterday? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah, I don't... That, that does not mean he votes for him or supports him. Uh, the top 10 stories yes, on Facebook over the past 24 hours are, you know, I think you would say um, pretty pretty clearly on the right of the spectrum. And, and this is not uh, not unusual. So, you know, Franklin Graham, Ben Shapiro, Fox News times three. Um, it, it's difficult, n not even just talking about their policies on the on the fringes, um, but by far the the, the the bulk of the content that um, gets a lot of the attention on on Facebook is often on the far right of the, on the right of the spectrum. That gets attention, meaning that that people right, see that's, that's most shared. Yes. Yeah, but uh, that that's that's also an unfalsifiable uh, uh, proposal. Right, but that's what we're saying about the bias claims as well. I, I, I take it, but uh, I, I have not noticed a, a mass movement among Facebook employees to walk out because uh, uh, conservatives are not treated fairly on the platform. I don't think that's because they think that uh, conservatives uh, uh, are advantaged. I think it's because uh, uh, there aren't any conservatives to speak of uh, uh, by and large at Facebook. I, I, I grant you their policy office has people who are in the George W. Bush administration, which may make them pro or anti-Trump, who knows? Okay, uh, so let me let me transition this. Uh, if you want facts, Nate, um, why would you not want more transparency about how these decisions are made and what decisions are being made? I'm, I'm actually not opposed to transparency. I think that's fine. Um, but I think I think at some point the you know folks like the president have to to accept those decisions. And you know they have been very transparent in this case, um, in the case of President Trump's tweet about uh, mail-in ballots, for example, where they've fact-checked it and they've explained what they've done and why they've done it. And 
I th- at least in my opinion, it's it's well reasoned and well argued, and it's something that as the owner and operator of the platform, they're fully entitled to do, and you know, and the president doesn't like it because he doesn't like anybody challenging him. He doesn't want yeah, but facts. I, 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 I don't think we. Would so, do so I don't think transparency like solves. Let's, let's, no, let's, but I just don't think transparency solves this problem because it, as you were saying a minute ago, I think it is unsolvable and it's unsolvable for the companies and it's unsolvable for policymakers. And so I think people have to use their best judgment to, 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 you know, regulate misbehavior on these platforms. And, you know, you're not going to please everybody. You have to accept that fact. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that it's hard for them. And I think the idea of, of giving notice and uh, an opportunity to be heard to people who stuff that's being taken down is going to be a nightmare uh, to administer. At the same time, I, is there anybody on this call who thinks it is staggering that um, you know barbers in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, can't talk to their families without uh, 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 three powerful uh, executives in Silicon Valley saying, uh, you can't say that. I, I just find that astonishing and a power that has never existed in the United States before and one we shouldn't allow to continue without finding some way to discipline it. But it only applies to one single medium, right, Stuart? It's saying you can't use our platform to say something. And that's a platform that everybody uses to talk to everybody. They, they talk to their families about uh, uh, family matters as well as uh, public matters. Uh, uh, how else are they going to do it? They, they, they have to you know, get out their landline and their dial, their rotary dial phone to, to have conversations. <laughs> there's text message. There's WhatsApp. There's email. There are, there are plenty of opportunities for people to do this. This is about speaking to mass audiences. And, and I think it's, it's at the same time a little bit dangerous to expect them to carry anything and to mandate that. You know, nobody, you know, to go back to the newspaper analogy, nobody went back to the New York Times or the, the Wall Street Journal and said, anytime anybody sends a, an opinion letter in, you have to publish it. It's, it's mandatory because they have a right to speak on your platform. You don't. You never have. In point of fact, when it turned out that there was only one uh, uh, room for one newspaper in a metropolitan area, there was enormous government action to try to ensure that uh, there would be more than one editorial voice. Uh, And that's how we ended up with two newspapers running one uh, um, uh, uh, printing press. when uh, it turned out that uh, broadcasting uh, gave broadcasters enormous say over how the public conversation went from uh, uh, fireside chats to uh, 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 local uh, uh, TV stations, uh, there were large numbers of regulations adopted to make sure that that did not become a dominant uh, and, uh, uh, in the view of uh, Congress, oppressively uh, unilateral form of communication. So well, almost every new technology except this one has been met with uh, policies 
designed to make sure that the people who had seized control of a few companies did not end up seizing control of our uh, national dialogue. Um, I'm just, uh, let, let me ask Evelyn, uh, I know you tried to get in earlier. Yes, so Stuart, I'm, I'm happy to agree with you that we need to have an important societal conversation about the power of big tech. And I'm also happy to agree with you that I think we need much more transparency in due process around how content moderation occurs. I don't want to be trapped into siding with the platforms suddenly um, in, a, in a debate that's been raging for a long time and work that I've done on for a long time about these problems with the platform's exercise of their power, um, just because I think that the executive order uh, was a piece of political theater that doesn't really engage in that conversation in good faith. And I think we're skipping over a lot of steps when we immediately go to the questions around 230 and the way it's framed in the executive order, because the executive order can't change Section 230 and doesn't have and it is a power grab by the executive to try and create exactly this kind of discussion uh, about platform policies um, in a way that it, it just it, it um, isn't engaging in that conversation in, in good faith. This is not an enforceable uh, executive order. It, it directs the FCC and FTC uh, in a way that they don't necessarily have to pay attention to and don't necessarily have the authority to um, actually uh, create the changes that the that the um, the EO suggests. So, you know, I, I, uh, I agree with you that there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And the most interesting part of the executive order to me uh, was the addition in the final version that wasn't in the leaked version that was circulating all day, which was section five, uh, to direct the attorney general to prepare a um, a legislative proposal along the lines in the executive order, because that's when um, these policies will will start to uh, actually be enforceable and have effect. So I think you're right that that, that uh, uh, obviously the president doesn't write legislation. Uh, uh, at the same time, it's the president's job to uh, uh, take care that the uh, to faithfully execute the law. He's entitled to a view about what the law says. He's entitled to send his Justice Department out to defend that view. He's entitled to ask his administrative agencies to defend that view. Uh, so it's not- Of course, it, 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 but this is not a not law a executed by the okay, executive. So this is an immunity provided by Congress and interpreted by the courts. This is not a, a law that requires execution by the executive. So let me ask this. Do you think that if um, uh, today, without that interpretation, um, the FTC could say, um, we've been looking over Twitter's uh, uh, terms of service, and we think that they systematically fail to apply uh, that policy uh, in a consistent fashion. Uh, and we're going to uh, treat that as a fraudulent, as a deceptive practice uh, or an unfair practice and seek action. Do you, they, to bring that action, they have to overcome 230, but they are perfectly entitled to bring the action and try to overcome it by arguing that there's no good faith in a, an inconsistent practice, isn't there? So the immunity provided by Section 230 in paragraph C1 is, is not contingent on a good faith requirement. That's important to be clear about that. I know. Right, We're so I, it's unclear to me what the um, what the claim would be under. Uh, so uh, the FTC has shown no sort of real appetite for bringing those claims, and the uh, courts have consistently found that um, that. that 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 kind of good faith claim there isn't isn't really um, enforceable. I I just find it difficult to engage in. So so let me but let me stop you there because you said there's no authority here, but the FTC has brought 
privacy claims for 20 years against companies without having any statutory authority to bring privacy claims. They brought it by saying, you promised to treat people's uh, uh, data uh, in a safe and secure fashion. Or you said we only gather six kinds of data and you gathered a seventh. Uh, that is a a promise you made. You may have been surprised to discover that you made it in your marketing materials, but you did. And we are going to treat that as deceptive and fine you until you bring your practices in line with what we think is appropriate privacy uh, 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 procedure. Uh, the very same theory could be applied to uh, application of uh, content moderation. So I'm not an expert on the FTC, and I'm going to uh, defer and, and, and say that I can't really comment on that. Other people that are uh, experts on it have, okay. have said that they, they question the the um, authority and appetite there. I will say, though, that again, we're... Oh, appetite, I agree, but uh, on, a, on authority, well, we're back to wrong. We're back to square one, though, <laughs> of there being no factual basis for such a, a, a claim. Okay, so that maybe then, then if there's no factual basis, they'll survive that uh, investigation just fine, and we'll all be wiser for the investigation. I, that strikes me as a, 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 a valuable exercise. Okay, all right, we're going to stop there, uh, because we actually do have a news roundup uh, that covers more than just Section uh, uh, 230. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know what's more depressing, uh, uh, the fact that uh, FISA is still hanging around or the way that uh, um, uh, the, uh, Congress is handling it. Uh, uh, Nate, what's the latest on the amendments to bring back authorities under FISA that no one seems to actually be against? Yeah, um, gridlock. <laughs> They're not able to get these provisions reauthorized. And, you know, when we were writing and passing this legislation originally um, 12 years ago, um, if you had asked me, I probably would have said these things will be reauthorized relatively easily in perpetuity. Um, and in a lot of ways, I don't think the political dynamics have changed all that much. Um, except in one very significant respect, and that's President Trump. Um, you know, he he largely has has uh, complete control over a large portion of the Republican caucus, and he, you know, with you know, if you're negotiating this thing at this point, you're not just aiming at a moving target with Trump. You're aiming, in, in my opinion, at a non-existent one. He's upset about something here that is largely unrelated to the provisions in this legislation. And that's not to say that neither he nor the people who have concerns about the, the actual legislation itself don't have legitimate points to make. But it, it's instead to say that he's, I think, showing his true colors here. He is not trying to govern at this point. He doesn't have a proposal to address what he believes are the injustices that occurred in the Carter Page scandal? So the so-called. So he has, he's basically called. He he said, if you pass this bill, which was the bill that seemed to be the logical conclusion after the House had passed a bill, the Senate had tweaked it lightly uh, and sent it back, and the House was trying to decide whether to tweak it one more time and send it back again. Uh, the president said, no, I, 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 the whole thing sucks. Uh, start over, more or less. Uh, uh, and Nancy Pelosi said, I can't pass this without some Republican votes, and therefore um, uh, I'm going to have to go to conference, uh, which, you know, uh, I, I remember the days when 
every bill that had disagreements went to conference. Now it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, uh, but uh, I, uh, we, we all we know is that uh, it will go to conference at some point. They have a bill that is very close that was negotiated with the Justice Department. The Justice Department has said, if you put in these additional tweaks, we're we're going to bail and ask the president to veto, which won't be hard to get him to do. Um, uh, so we have a, a, a negotiation in which both sides have nuclear weapons and neither side is willing to uh uh to, to further uh limit the uh, uh their demands uh, um i think the formally the debate is over a uh, uh, pretty bad idea from uh, uh senator uh, wyden and uh, senator danes uh to require uh warrants prior to uh, obtaining browsing history, uh, um, a, it was tweaked again in the House when it came over there to say, well, maybe for Americans, that should be the standard. It's not the standard in, in criminal cases, but uh, uh, naturally, we want to give uh, spies more rights than ordinary criminals. Uh, a, and um, at that point, the left bailed out and said, that's not good enough. Wyden bailed out and said, that's not good enough. The president said, uh, uh, this, 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 is, this all sucks. Uh, uh, I don't see any way, any easy way out of this other than to distract the president uh, uh, or maybe to get Barr to uh, 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 commit seppuku on the White House lawn. I, th I think that's right. I mean, and especially now, because people like Wyden have no incentive to give in, right? They have a lot of leverage here because they know the president is is unmovable at this point. And so, you know, so they, he might not they're be now... unmovable. He, he's being fed, I think, uh, by uh conservative slash libertarian uh, uh, senators who, who constantly said during the debate, I don't think the president's going to sign this bill. I, as Rand Paul in particular, uh, but maybe Mike Lee, they're clearly playing this up. You've got to do something about FISA, Mr. President, uh, and this is the chance. Um, so it, it could be that they could finally persuade him uh, to sign on, but then you have to get uh, uh, Lee and Paul on board, which is not so easy either. Well, I, 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 do, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you probably can get the votes to do it without Lee and Paul and without Wyden. Um, but you can't do that without the president. And I think you're right. You know, he, he's easy to trigger on this thing. And, um, because again, he, he, he I can, I bet my, my life that, he knows virtually nothing about any of this stuff substantively. Oh, it is I, I, all yes. about politics for him. Right. And given, so, given a choice you know, between good sees, government and a good tweet, I think we all know where he's, he's going to go. <laughs> and, and, and he's easy to, you know, to coax into giving that tweet here. And, and as soon as he does, the thing, you know, falls apart. So, so I think you're right. It's, it's just hard to see, um, you know, a way through this gridlock until he moves. All right, um, let's go on. Uh, this is just so depressing. NSA uh, 
surprisingly, because they don't do this much, uh, actually called out uh, the GRU uh, saying they're exploiting a, a pretty serious uh, uh, Unix bug. Uh, Nick, uh, uh, how bad is this? Uh, well, it's a bad bug if you hadn't patched in the past half year. The update in question for the XM mail program dates back to June 2019. Um, and according to the NSA, a particular uh, GRU main center for special technologies, field post 74455, has been using this since August. So... Yeah, the, 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 what the uh, uh, Unix guy said. Well, there's no sign anybody's exploiting it. Well, now they got a sign. Uh, I I worry. I let me ask this, Nick. I'm assuming that XM is the kind of program that you might um, lift up as a package and drop into some other piece of software just to give you the of the functionality. Uh, and then once it's in that software, it's not clear who's who's going to uh, patch it. Not really, because it's a standalone program that's being used to receive email. Okay. Um, and it's an incredibly dumb vulnerability. Um, but if I wanted to add uh, email functionality to TikTok, uh, mightn't I just say, oh, I'll just put XM in there. That, that'll, no. That'll be all the... No. Okay. Because... Uh, Everybody needs to send email. Very few need to receive email. Okay, uh, uh, you know, let's uh, let's do our uh, tour of uh, uh, other uh, uh, hackers. Uh, uh, North Korean officials uh, got caught moving two point five billion dollars. Much of it, I, I assume, uh, uh, ill-gotten uh, uh, gains from their hacking operations. Uh, uh, looks like a pretty substantial breach of their OPSEC on moving money around. Uh, uh, that may be the more interesting aspect of this. Yeah. And what surprises me is that some of the details got in because it also suggests that at least for a while, the U.S. had internal communications and is willing to spill the fact that we had internal communications of the North Korean groups in a court document like this. Yeah, that's, that basically says, yeah, go looking for how we got this, because we got it six ways. Okay, and um, uh, we're you know decoupling is still underway. Uh, uh, long story in Politico about uh, the likelihood of uh, uh, the exclusion of a whole bunch of Chinese telecom companies from uh, uh, U.S. markets. Uh, uh, and I actually was more interested, uh, Nate. I don't know if you followed this as closely as I did uh, in um, uh, the seizure of a. Enormous transformer, electrical transformer, uh, a, at the port, and the shipment to uh, Sandia Labs so that it could be uh, investigated. Presumably, looking for um, uh, ways in which the equipment had been su made susceptible to hacking attacks, uh, um, and one uh, suspects as a prelude to saying you're not going to be able to sell us transformers anymore as well. I haven't followed that story as, as closely, Stuart, but I think you're right. And I think, you know, the, the license issue with the FCC and, and DOJ's recent 
recent comments uh, to Politico about it are are to me you know interesting. I think uh, objectively they make good points about uh, the fact that look if you're going to do this to one company or two companies, you're probably going to have to do it to all Chinese companies um, to to ensure even-handed application of our standard. Um, and justice, it looks like justice is happy to do that. Yeah, exactly. And the FCC may be even more so. They, yeah, they may be right behind them. And and I don't think, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, these individual actions are, are all that significant, just given the limited, you know, market penetration these companies have in the U.S., but the cumulative impact of all of this stuff is, is clearly what, what the Trump administration is after in trying to, to apply some pressure to China here. Yeah. So, Evelyn, I got two stories I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about. Uh, uh, first, uh, just to touch on content uh, moderation once again, this story in which YouTube is, is taking down massive numbers of videos that use uh, words to describe the 50 cent army as though they were, you know, uh, 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 racial slurs. I, no one yet has explained why that happened, although YouTube is saying it was a mistake. Is that is that where we are with this uh, uh, sort of content moderation? Uh, yeah, so it was actually uh, comments, not not videos, as far as I understand. It's actually a big week um, in it, for filters. Uh, you know, very often um, when we get into this content mo- moderation uh, quagmire, people talk about AI filters being the, the thing that's going to get us out of this, um, given the entire scale. And so that's, that's one story where it's unclear what was causing YouTube to be automatically deleting these comments. It said it was a mistake, but they haven't really explained it. Um, And it's not clear whether it was human error or AI error, although the fact that it was consistent um, seems telling. The most, I mean, in the absence of actual evidence, the most convincing explanation I've seen is something along the lines of the fact that um, these comments were being flagged more often by users um, as hate speech. And so then the AI uh, tools learnt um, that it should be uh, taking those down. Um, the other story. Oh, so it's a machine learning attack. Uh, Potentially. Which, yeah. Whether, whether it was coordinated and intentional or whether it was just innocent in that this, some of this actually was hate speech um, is, is also unclear. Um, but yes, that that's the most convincing explanation I've seen so far. The other story, just really quickly, uh, that it, that shows how filters are going to, n- not going to save us, um, is when UK uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's chief advisor was at the centre of a scandal uh, this week for breaching lockdown orders. Um, Ordinarily, his name would be trending on Twitter, um, but the fact is his name is Dominic Cummings, and so therefore uh, anti-porn filters uh, took issue with his name, and uh, it didn't show up in the trending topics at all all week. So Sad, um, but it it shows you how how many pretty... uh, imaginative misspellings have proliferated in the porn world. Uh, uh, um, yeah, that's uh, that is kind of sad. But he, I mean, he probably is delighted. You know, I I may I may have to change my name. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> okay. And and the uh, uh, the other one I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, because uh, you know uh, you may have to disclose your uh, appearance on the uh, Cyber Law Podcast uh, under this rule. Um, there's a, a a rule that requires visa applicants to disclose social media handles. Uh, it's now being challenged, and Twitter and Reddit filed amicus briefs. Did you read the the brief? 
I, I didn't read them in full, but I am relieved to be able to finally talk freely about this. I have this running joke on Twitter where I tweet out updates of this story affirming how, you know, as someone that will have to apply for a visa in the next five years, I'm steadfastly neutral on the government's policy of requiring visa <laughs> applicants to hand over their social media handles. Uh, and I'll just exclusively tweet about how great this country's absolute free speech tradition is. Uh, but in this non-social media space, uh, I can I can show my hand and, and say that, yes, I am I'm fully supportive of the Knight First Amendment Institute's uh, challenge to this law and uh, Twitter and uh, Reddit just filed amicus briefs this week affirming that they are very much in support of their users' um, free expression and the fact that many of their users use anonymous uh, handles and things uh, to to engage in really important political speech. And so uh, they support the challenge. Well, with respect, it's a it's a it's a dumb lawsuit with a dumb theory, uh, which is that uh, uh, the First Amendment uh uh, protects people uh, uh, people's anonymity to the point where you can't even ask uh, uh, for uh, something that could produce extraordinarily relevant information about whether to admit them to the country. Uh, but uh, it, it's Ninth Circuit, you know, who knows? <laughs> well, I will say that the 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 the, the um, collection is is very broad and it can be. Uh, kept indefinitely and shared broadly among federal agencies uh, for a variety of reasons. So uh, that that might complicate your analysis. <laughs> All right. Um, Nick, quick, I need a quantum, quantum holographic catalyzer because I think there's a 5G station near me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great story because this is part of a bigger misinformation problem. So there's a device that's supposed to protect you from the 5G radiation that turns out to be a 128 megabyte USB drive with a golden package. It's not even big Um, enough. You can't really use it as a a USB stick. It's it's too small. (laughs) Yeah. It has just enough for the instructions that say you don't actually need to plug it in for the placebo effect. To That's work. the part I love is you just carry it. You, it. you could carry it around your neck, presumably, with your garlic. Yeah. The, the bigger worry, however, is there's this huge misinformation about cell phone, quote unquote, radiation. It's electromagnetic radiation. It's not ionizing radiation. And the key is just physics, that high-energy ionizing radiation causes cancer. Low-energy photons cannot cause cancer. The only thing they can do is heat you up if you shove enough of them at you. And we aren't sticking our heads in microwave ovens when we're using a cell phone. Um, but this misinformation online is dangerous. There have been multiple cases of cell towers being burned in the UK. Um, there's been so many cases where people have objected to cell towers being put up. Um, you have people claiming electromagnetic sensitivity um, that could get a million dollars from James Randi if they proved it. Yep. Um, and this is just a symptom of this disinformation plague. So as Americans, we are now hereby and for years to come a stop from making fun of other countries that are burning things down for no damn good reason. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think uh, uh, we just have to say it is kind of sad. But, I, you know, look, uh, uh, if they're selling a USB key for 
350 bucks and people are willing to buy it instead of burning down the mast uh, you know uh, we're all better off except maybe the guy who um, who bought it all right. I, look, thank you, guys. I know it went long, uh, and uh, I appreciate you doing this, but I really do want to start talking to Bart Gelman, uh, uh, who, uh, whose book, uh, oh, wait, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic, uh, senior fellow at the Century Foundation, uh, the author of uh, Dark Mirror, uh, Edward Snowden and the uh, American Surveillance State. Uh, but Bart, I think of you as a Washington Post reporter, but in fact, even you know before Snowden, the Snowden stories, you hadn't been working at the Post for several years. Uh, you actually came back to report the Snowden stories. Uh, uh, how did that uh, uh, that that happen? And are you do you think of yourself still as a reporter today? I do. I was a, on a fellowship at the Century Foundation, which continues to, to date. Uh, and I was working on uh, magazine stories at that time for time. So I'd written some cover stories uh, on Special Operations Command and the FBI and so forth. I was uh, starting to work up a book proposal on privacy when an anonymous correspondent uh, came to me uh, claiming to have uh, important new information about intelligence gathering. So it was interesting. You're, you, you, you give a really candid um, insight into what it's like to be a national security reporter um, and the particular problems that you had with Snowden, but many of them were were typical. And and I hadn't realized, although I get these calls too, you know, I get, I get people who are clearly suffering from psychiatric illness and who want to hire me to uh, to sue the people that are inside their heads uh, and you must get uh, people approaching you to to tell you they've got a great story and they've got all this classified stuff that they want to tell you and and so your your first problem with this guy was figuring out whether he was for real oh yeah it was highly unusual to find someone in my inbox out of the blue who would check out who would turn out to have access to authentic information uh, and who was not uh, misguided, disturbed, uh, or profoundly misunderstanding of something that he thought he knew. Uh, and I, I assumed at first that this was going to go nowhere. But he kept saying something just interesting enough in each exchange that it kept me going to the next one. And uh, we began... Uh, fairly quickly to talk about a document that he had not yet showed me, but that I began to interrogate uh, in principle, asking him, you know, how he got it, what gave, what, what, what should persuade me that he even had access to information like this, uh, still less an ability to vouch for it, um, whether the document was written by a high level or a low level person, whether it had been approved by higher authority, whether it was uh, a draft proposal or uh, or, or something else. Uh, and, you know, I asked him dozens and dozens of questions about this document, what the government would say about it if I came to them and so on before I ever saw the thing. And now he didn't trust you. Uh, it, uh, maybe he never has trusted you, uh, but he certainly didn't trust you at the outset. Uh, uh, that was because he basically thought you'd wuss out on him when the going got tough? He had a view of mainstream news organizations that they 
uh, would allow the government to tell them what to publish and what not to publish, and that uh, either the Washington Post or I would lack the nerve to stand up and publish a newsworthy story if the government threatened consequences. So there is a kind of, there's a standard Janet Malcolm problem for, for journalists in that the, the people who come to you all want the story told from their point of view. They have a narrative. They want to see it in the paper. Uh, and you have to get them to tell you the story without quite promising them to tell the narrative as they see it because you don't know that that's how you'll see it. Uh, did you have that issue here? So this is a different issue from what you just thought, yes. uh, just said. But yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, I did have that issue here, uh, but I was quite open about it. I wanted to encourage a spirit of candor uh, between us. So I let him know when I started, A, I, I don't start off by believing that you are actually a member of the intelligence community or know anything um, uh, authentic about it. And I also said... Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm able to quote uh, many um, extensive direct exchanges between us in the book because many of them took place in writing over anonymous encrypted chat channels. So you can see exactly what I said to him. And that included, I'm not going to suck up to you. I'm not your advocate. Uh, I am very much interested in the public debate about the issues that you're raising. Uh, and that was the distinction I tried to enforce throughout. So his he came to you in part, if I remember right, because Glenn Greenwald just could not wrap his head around uh, dealing with encryption or any of the technical safeguards that Snowden and pretty much you thought were essential for a discussion of this. And so he just, for a long time, never responded to the emails that he got from Snowden saying, I really want you to tell this story. Uh, and so uh, if I understand it right, uh, uh, at the end of the day, Snowden went to uh, uh, his friend, Laura Poitras, and said, uh, I need help. And she said, uh, I think I can get uh, a Bart Gelman to talk to you. It wasn't quite exactly like that. Uh, you're right about Glenn. Uh, Glenn got the same kind of... Uh, opaque anonymous tip uh, that I saw. Uh, I'm a member of the intelligence community who knows secrets that you're going to want to know. Please learn how to encrypt. And then Glenn ignored that. And so Snowden made a video uh, anonymously and said, here's how you learn how to encrypt. Just click here, click here, uh, and, and we can talk. And Glenn ignored that. And so he went to Laura Poitras. They weren't friends. He didn't know her. Uh -huh. uh, but he knew her reputation uh, because she already because of her uh, controversial films on Iraq and the war on terror, had been subject to uh, secondary searches and imaging of her devices and uh, extensive interrogation every time she crossed the U.S. border. It wasn't uh, just because of her films. There, there was, uh, there were widespread reports within the government that uh, uh, parts of the military believed that she had exposed U.S. troops to attack for the sake of getting a good film. Uh, I wouldn't go. I would. I would. I would. I wouldn't give it so much legitimacy. Legitimacy, okay. to be honest. It was. It was. What it was. It was one lieutenant colonel, as I recall, who okay. uh, was disturbed by the coincidence that she was already filming when an attack could, took place. Which sooner or later, if you film enough in Iraq, it's going to happen. And he thought she might have known about it in advance. In any event, that let led to uh, special interest taken in her. Snowden read about that uh, and went to Laura Poitras. Uh, Laura also was was uh, 
unsure and honestly anxious about this tip. She wondered if someone was setting her up uh, with a, fa a deliberately false story, which is always one of the possibilities. Uh, and she came to me because she knew I knew something about the subject and because I had already advised her uh, in the context of her border experiences on how to encrypt. Ah, okay. So this is, this is interesting. You've, you've, you've presumably been reasonably tech savvy for a long time, uh, or at least uh, uh, open to it, uh, tech curious, I guess. Uh, um, <laughs> is this the first time it's actually done you some good in getting a story? No, it wasn't. Uh, I, first of all, I've been trying to protect the security of my confidential notes and uh, sources for a long time. And so it was right about um, 2006 when Time Magazine turned over the report, the, the notes of a reporter uh, over the reporter's objection in a government case. Uh, since then, I said, I don't want to be in that position. And so I started encrypting my notes. I started developing uh, some proficiency in how you uh, communicate securely, um, how you protect the identities of the correspondents uh, using Tor and other anonymizing uh, proxies, uh, which we don't need to get into in detail. But yeah, I was technically proficient uh, and it has done me good uh, in my reporting. But uh, the, the sort of the more I learned, the deeper I fell into this rabbit hole of, oh no, this is a vulnerability and that's a vulnerability. And right, you can, never be, you can never be safe enough, right? <laughs> you can never be safe enough. And I eventually built a set of communications channels uh, that effectively put me in a locked room all by myself and there was no one there to talk to, uh, which wasn't helpful. And I was just about ready to write the whole thing off as having gone too far when Snowden came along in the guise of uh, anonymous correspondent named Virax, and I had to use all that. So I would, since this is a cyber law uh, uh, podcast, uh, I was uh, really interested in the contrast between the two law firms and the two clients uh, that um, you approached uh, with this story. Uh, you had left the, uh, you know, I, I got a sense when you said, I, um, I started encrypting my notes uh, when uh, uh, one of my editors, so when one editor uh, uh, sold out a uh, reporter, that maybe you weren't the easiest employee to supervise. Uh, <laughs> and, and, That's been said. <laughs> so you had left the Washington Post and gone to uh, uh, NYU uh, Law School and the Century Foundation uh, grant. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, at that point, you got the story and had to take it back to somebody who would publish it. And you had two choices. Uh, you could have gone to Time, where you had been uh, working some, uh, or you could have gone to the Washington Post. Uh, uh, can, you, can you give us a vignette of the lawyering that occurred in the two institutions? Sure. Uh I will say, I, I was not distrustful of the Washington Post in particular. Uh, I just wanted to have control of my own yes. digital space. Uh, when Snowden came along, I did not want to be freelance Bart trying to deal with this stupendous story with its many different uh, risks and pitfalls and dilemmas to solve. And so I did seek... Uh, Sponsorship. I wanted to sort of be in the fold of a large news organization that could 
uh, give me legal protection that could give me collaboration uh, and and judgment that I didn't want to make all by myself. I was already a contributing editor at large at time, uh, so the natural thing would be to start there. I worked for journalists I respected very much, and I went to them and said, what would the attitude of the magazine be uh, toward a story that will be about classified things? So I went to Time and said, uh, are you interested and are you willing to do a story um, that may involve a document with scary stamps on it? And the journalists were very much interested. Uh, they brought this up to the business side, uh, which was in the middle of uh, preparing for a spinoff of the magazine division of, of Time Inc., uh, out of the fabulously wealthy uh, Time Warner Corporation because news was a drag on its profits. And uh, the corporate side showed no interest at all. Uh, they said, everyone stop. Do not speak to your editors about anything classified. Um, we're going to get you uh, prime legal advice that's going to help you uh, work through all this um, as best as possible. And the prime legal advice following the wishes of Time or of Time Warner uh, was that uh, it was forbidden for me to discuss any classified material with any government official or with my editors. Um, that is to say, I could not discuss my story uh, with yes, sources or, let alone publish or fellow it. <laughs> journalists, uh, let alone publish it. And that what I was supposed to do was, is talk to this lawyer um, who was a former senior government official um, in your old department in Homeland Security and mm -hmm. presumably still had a clearance. And he would tell me uh, what I could ask or he would ask for me with properly cleared officials and so on. I mean, it was, it was a complete non-starter. It was preposterous. It was a way of saying no without saying no to the story. So, so, you, so you, I, you did I, I interpret that as, as them basically saying, we don't want this story. I, I, I'm going to offer this. I think that was perfectly good conservative advice for a company that doesn't want to be accused of violating the law. Um, but it, as you said, uh, you can't be in the business of breaking stories like this if you don't want to be accused of breaking the law because there are so many ambiguities in the Espionage Act that uh, right. uh, it would be easy to charge people. Uh, uh, so uh, it may be that uh, it, it clearly was legal advice that reflected the conservatism of the Corporation. And just to be uh, clear, we're talking we're talking about caution rather than political conservatism. Yes, uh, of course. We're talking exactly. about uh, you know what 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 you lawyers like to say is an abundance of caution, or in this case, I think a superabundance of caution. Uh, it, they were so cautious that uh, that in effect they were saying uh, go somewhere else. Right. There was no doubt about and, that. And they may have been reading their client. Uh, 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 and and then the post uh, uh, went to uh, uh, the law firm that had been representing them for. 20 years as they've been accused time and again of endangering U.S. national security, sometimes with good reason. Uh, and uh, uh, they gave you much different advice. Right. Well, they also were following the lead of their client. The client wanted and by nature wants uh, the opportunity to publish a story that it sees in, in the public interest. And so the lawyer's job is to lean forward, uh, explain where the boundaries are, uh, explain what the risks are. But look for a way to say yes, uh, and that's yeah. what happened at Williams and Connolly, uh, where the partner uh, Kevin Bain. I had had 
some long some some long history with him and and, and knew what his attitude was. Yeah, I and I, the lesson is you can you can be a very good lawyer and give very different advice depending on where you think your client's appetite for risk lies. So let me, I, I'm actually in your book briefly uh, for uh, some throwaway quote that I will uh, apparently have on my uh, uh, tombstone that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, probably because it plays against my type. But, uh, uh, but um, you describe me as being harshly critical of some of your stories, so I don't want I don't want to fail to be harshly critical of some of your stories. Uh, the stories that came out, the two stories that you got out first, one was about what we now call the 215 program, the uh, uh, collection of all the uh, metadata about all calls in the United States, uh, uh, which were used for a. Uh, uh, to create a database that could be searched under very careful restrictions. Uh, and then second, uh, the, the PRISM uh, uh, program, Section 702 is what we usually think of it in, in law, which is the program in which uh, uh, foreign communications uh, that stop for a cup of coffee on the servers of Google or uh, Microsoft Outlook, uh, Hotmail, uh, can be subpoenaed by the government uh, based on uh, uh, who uh, the communications are going to. Uh, and you did those kind of one, two, if I remember right, one story on the fifth or the sixth and then next on the sixth or the seventh. Is that right? Uh Actually, it was the Guardian that broke the story about the metadata, uh, and the Washington Post that broke the story about uh, Section Seven Hundred Two. So you did do the the, the story on the Verizon uh, uh, order uh, on the two fifteen program, but that was not uh, kind of a fast follower to the Guardian story. I know they broke it, but I didn't see any credit uh, to them in the story that that, that you guys uh, have on your website. So uh, I wondered whether uh, you decided, well, we are also have the story and we can run it, even though they broke it. Oh, I I, I don't remember, but ordinarily we would give credit for them to uh, have published it first. Yeah. So uh, let me let me give you my criticism of I'll, I'll start with the prism one, which you did break uh, uh, it. The, the opening line is the National Security Agency and the FBI are tapping directly into the central servers of nine leading U.S. Internet companies and extracting all kinds of information about uh, 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 users of those service. And that is just wrong. I uh, and, and wrong in a way that has caused years of pain to U.S. Uh, uh, intelligence uh, agencies because, uh, you know, the, the the European Court of Justice relied on language like that in your story and The, and the Guardian uh, to wrongly characterize the facts in a case that we're still living with the consequences of. Uh, and uh, uh, the entities that uh, uh, are supposedly having uh, letting people tap directly into their central servers um, were so beaten up by that uh, implication that the relationship with the with Washington has never really recovered so I, I I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to tell me either that I'm incorrect in saying that that's wrong or more as I suspect from reading the book, that there was extenuating circumstances. Well, it's a little bit neither. I want to uh, explain that the debate over direct access has to do with definitions of direct that vary between the NSA and the technology 
companies. I mean, from there's a there's a lot about that first story that I would have written differently six months later, having learned a lot more. Uh, but here's what here's what I was working from. I was working from a document that was written by the program manager of the Prism of the Prism collection uh, as the official briefing. Uh, you know, it's a standard command brief. This is who we are, what we do, how we do it. Uh, it not only said in a display slide direct access. Uh, but it was explained at uh, uh, some greater length in the speaker's notes, which uh, this document included. And the speaker's notes said uh, that we used to have to collect only uh, on the fly as the data traveled around the internet. Um, and what this program allows us to do is to, quote, collect the full content directly from the provider's servers. Uh, and from the NSA's point of view, that was true. Uh, they were contrasting uh, indirect access, which is when you grab packets as on the fly and reassemble them, to direct access in which you get it, uh, the data at rest uh, from the provider servers. They were not saying, uh, it turns out, that they stick a straw you know, into a piece of hardware and suck the data out themselves. Uh, and that physical direct access definition is the one that the tech companies used and, and disputed, and they were right to dispute that. And yes, it led to big misunderstandings. But I mean, just from a reporter's point yeah, of view, I, that, I, 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 I have the document. It's the authoritative document. I, I tell, understand, I, I tell I, the but government I think what you... I'm going to publish. They don't dispute it. The, the companies have no comment. Uh, p stories published, then the companies start to deny it, and, uh, and the government still won't explain. So uh, I would say that it was a difficult position to be in it for a reporter, and I had no reason uh, I, did, I didn't understand that there were two definitions uh, at work here. I think it's, I, I, you know, look, I'm not even sure that that's two different definitions. They, uh, when you, when you understand how NSA works and as you say, uh, how, what a pain in the neck it is to try to assemble these things from what you happen to collect uh, as the uh, uh, packets fly by, you realize that being able to get it uh, already assembled uh, from a central server is a much better deal. Um, but, you know, they didn't say we're tapping directly into the servers. That's it said, you we quote, being collect a little... the full content directly from the provider's servers, end quote. That's what the, that's what the document said. Okay. I, and that isn't the same as tapping. It, it is collecting it. I, and you're right. They, they, what they're saying, they're correctly saying we're collecting it. To, uh, they left out because uh, it's not as sexy that we do it with court orders. Uh, um, and I think that's part of the problem here is you weren't uh, sufficiently cynical about the motivations of the guys who wrote the slides and the notes, which their 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 motivation was to say, we are the sexiest damned interceptors on Absolutely. the planet. Look how cool it we was are. It was written to highlight their value and, and coolness and importance and uh, presumably to support their budget requests. Uh, that that I knew, and okay. uh, it just it just seemed unambiguous. But honestly, the, the, the distinction for, from the public policy point of view um, is very important uh, in some respects and not at all important in others. Uh, I, I think a lot has been made of this, uh, maybe a little bit more than, than need be, but for sure I would write it differently right. knowing what I know now. 
So let me let me try out this other one, uh, uh, which is the two fifteen. Uh, and I I told you I was going to say this. Uh, uh, the Verizon order saying give us all the metadata, all the the call records uh, in the country, um, is a pretty shocking document. Still, uh, a, and you published that. Uh, right after the uh, um, uh, the the Guardian published its, you had in your records all of the restrictions on uh, that uh, uh, that program that made it a lot less than I'd like to uh, to just wander barefoot through this record whenever I feel like it. Uh, uh, and as I remember, it took something like two weeks for the Washington Post to get around to acknowledging that there were limitations like that. Uh, I, uh, how did that happen? Uh, we could go back and parse the stories. Uh, there, there were... We did take note that uh, these had to be done for foreign intelligence purposes against valid foreign targets uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, targeting collection and in terms of uh, in terms of using it for purposes of analysis, but I will say I didn't understand uh, the the uh, the limits uh, then, and I I would claim that nobody understands them even today um, sufficiently to write them in a in a quick newspaper paragraph. The the um, I, I didn't see all the documents at once. There were fifty thousand of them. Uh, and uh, yeah. A, there were far more important stories um, to dissect than the limitations story um, at the first, because there were there there were such remarkable, uh, remarkably broad collections uh, that were entirely unknown well, to the can, American can, public. Can I, but I but I want to say one more thing about this. Can I push you yeah, on sure. that? I, there there were there were stories that fit fit your uh, preferred narrative about the oh, sorry, that's dangers just not the way it happens of, at all. Uh, that's just not, that's right? just not it. it, it there's no preferred <laughs> narrative here. There's there's a news judgment. There's a news judgment that it, it, it th these things may not be shocking to you because you grew up in that world, you worked in that world, you took for granted the values of that world, but they were shocking to the American public uh, and they were shocking to me uh, to discover th the uh, the extent of bulk collection, uh, uh, the, the fact that it gathered directly from Americans, uh, for example. Uh, and there's a lot that's new in the book about the way those call data records, that metadata was used uh, and was processed inside the NSA that was that's never been told before. But I want to talk about minimization for a second. Minimization is, it, mm -hmm. it, if the story was uh, that they collect um, all this stuff, but they immediately identify and delete anything to do with Americans, uh, which it's not actually possible for them to do, but that's that's no, that's right. not what and that's, they do. That's not what they do. Uh, then it would be a huge gaping hole. Uh, not to say so. Uh, it was far less clear than that. Here, here's what Bob Litt said when he went out in public because of these stories, and he wanted to clearly explain uh, what it is that minimization does for you. Uh, and he said, "Here's," he said, and this is a quote from him, and he's quoting from documents. He says, "Minimization procedures." Uh, with respect to electronic surveillance means specific procedures adopted by the Attorney General that are reasonably designed in light of the purpose and technique of the particular surveillance to minimize the acquisition and retention and pro pro prohibit the dissemination of non-publicly available information concerning unconsenting United States persons consistent with the need of the United States to obtain, produce, and disseminate foreign intelligence information. Um, I, I defy anyone to parse that and say, I understand now uh, what 
what the limits are on the government. And when you read parse it, you'd have to you'd have to wake me up in the middle. Well, of but it that's again. The, this is him trying to explain it to intelligence members of the public who are not lawyers. Um, that's that's the that's that's the protection that we're supposed to be feeling. Um, good about. And uh, I'm not saying that, that there's anything wrong with minimization. I'm saying that uh, there are a lot of people who would who would look at that and say, I wonder if that's sufficient. And I wonder if the, the secrecy of the rules and procedures that interpret those ambiguous clauses um, is working in my favor. So I, I, I have to say, I feel sorry for Bob Litt, who's an old friend, uh, because he was in a situation where uh, he could not uh, talk about classified information to defend the program, and and all of the safeguards were also classified. To, uh, and you didn't give him a lot of time to kind of get up to speed to figure out what he could say. Um, uh, but it was uh, this was a particularly awkward situation in terms of uh, if they'd had a, a bit of time, they probably would have uh, they wouldn't have been able to talk about the the many safeguards. I, I think it's not just minimization. There were a bunch of program specific restrictions they could have talked about and do talk about now um a, and uh, uh but they couldn't talk about them because all of this was so highly classified but they at least could have said do you have a document that uh, that's 12 pages long that starts with this uh title and urged you to include i that agree with that and it was not it was not uh, a obviously. it was not a significant part of their answer their answer was uh all of our collection is lawful and directed at foreign intelligence targets that was essentially the the gist of their response, and I, I believe, I believe you. I, I, I absolutely believe that uh, the government was on its sort of hind foot and uh, unprepared and and handcuffed in its responses because the things it might have liked to say in its defense were also classified. And I, I to, to some degree, Snowden really drove that. He wanted this out and he uh, he put you in a position where you really couldn't spend as much time as you'd like uh, um, in back and forth with the government about what you could publish uh, I, or without doing grave damage because uh, he could always hand it over to uh, Greenwald and Greenwald wasn't going to have that discussion at all. This is uh, not an unusual uh, problem for journalists, which is uh, time pressure, deadline pressure, and in particular, competitive pressure. So yeah, Snowden uh, put pressure on me to publish within a particular time scale uh, because of his own plans. Uh, I resisted that pressure and did not meet his time uh, conditions. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, he said, well, I'm not going to be able to make this exclusive anymore. Uh, and he made renewed efforts to contact Greenwald, which this time succeeded. So let me talk about Snowden because I think everybody will be interested in this uh, uh, and we'll uh, make that the last chunk of uh, the interview. Uh, uh, what did you think of him personally? That's a complicated answer, honestly. He's uh, he's brilliant. There's uh, I, I'm not using that as, as a, a moral judgment or a normative statement. Uh, he's just an exceptionally intelligent guy, uh, very articulate. Uh, he can be... Uh, although he seldom is relaxed and funny, and uh, he's well well read as an autodidact, he, as everyone knows, he uh, dropped out of formal education early and started accumulating um, certificates uh, and uh, and and particular credentials for software engineering uh, and uh, digital security and so forth. Uh, but he's read widely and uh, can be good company. Um, he's also a scold. 
um, quite rigid in his views about what's important, what's not important. Uh, he he had uh, some not very flexible boundaries around what questions I could ask. Sometimes he would say to me, are you deliberately asking me questions that you know I won't answer just to piss me off? Uh, no, I wasn't, but I was trying to push his boundaries. Uh, he's um, quite convinced of the of the truth of what he's saying. He's very he's quite convinced of of the uh, moral propositions behind his statements, uh, and uh, is not especially tolerant of dissent against that. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a man convinced. Yeah. As, as I've often so, told people uh, in this position, people who, who describe themselves as whistleblowers and uh, want to explain to me as scandals that they've unearthed and are uh, sort of directly contrary to the institution uh, they worked in. I mean, they, they tend to be this kind of person. Yeah. Well, especially after you've paid a price for it, uh, then, then the, I, what you're saying becomes uh, very important to you and and the fact that you've suffered for it uh, just makes you more convinced uh do you think i mean i i have yet to see somebody persuasively make the case that he was a spy or working for the russians while he was doing this i've been a little less sure that the russians didn't find him when he was spouting all that libertarian stuff uh, in Geneva and they knew who he, I'm sure they knew he worked for the agency uh, uh, and they could find him online. So uh, I, I always wondered whether they didn't find somebody who could influence him uh, to do this as opposed to um, uh, try to get him to do it for them. Um, uh, any thoughts on that? Are you convinced that can't possibly be true or is it still a, a something that we'd have, we just have to view as not knowable? Well, I mean, you could imagine all kinds of things. Uh, and I, I did try to imagine all kinds of things and I pursued as many storylines as I could. I'll just say that if I were able to demonstrate uh, that he were in any way influenced by working for, uh, you know, at, at the beck and call of any foreign intelligence service, that would have been the biggest break in the book. I would have uh, happily written it and I would have called a lot of attention to it. Uh, on the other hand, if I were to say that I'm certain uh, that it's impossible uh, that he had any connection with any foreign intelligence service, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't believe me because no one can prove the negative. Um, and I would be outrunning my evidence. Uh, there, there is, however, yeah. no evidence uh, that he was contacted by, controlled by, uh, working for um, any foreign entity. Uh, you, you don't need to go very far to figure out what he was doing and why he was doing it. Uh, two two uh, deputy directors of the NSA, uh, one of them directly to me, uh, and uh, director of the FBI, told me uh, that they do not believe he was under foreign influence or working for a foreign government, that they believed he was he, he was an idealist in his own mind. Uh, uh, they just profoundly disagree with what he did. So his digital signature plan for asylum, which you cover in the book, and I'll ask you to explain, did raise in my mind the question whether he was thinking that uh, he could just walk across the Hong Kong-China border and get asylum. Uh, he was he, he was particularly knowledgeable about what the U.S. knew about Chinese cyber espionage. So he had a lot of valuable uh, uh, information. Um, and he wanted to prove that he was the guy who leaked the story to you. Uh, uh, how, how was he planning to do that? Snowden asked me to publish online uh, 
the entire PRISM document uh, in its digital form and a cryptographic signature uh, made by him, which is a tiny little file that is, uh, it requires uh, a valid signature by an encryption key. And essentially what it proves is this file is from me and it hasn't been changed uh, since it was made. It, so it, it guarantees the integrity of the file and, ex, and it establishes ownership. Right. It, it's a hash plus a, plus a, a, a private signature applied in a way that can be publicly verified. Exactly. Uh, he wanted me to publish this cryptographic signature and I didn't understand why uh, because it wouldn't prove the validity of the document. It would only prove that uh, that this anonymous person had signed it because the signature was from their ex, his alter ego which means truth teller in Latin. Uh, and I pushed him on this, you know, why are you asking me to do this? And he finally explained it. And I, I was quite alarmed by his explanation. His explanation was that he wanted to be able to go uh, to foreign embassies in Hong Kong uh, and walk in and say, I am a, a political dissident um, in America. I am the person behind this story that was just published in the Washington Post. I can prove that I am that person. I can prove that that document that they published came from me. Uh, and I would like you to give me asylum. He was asking me to post something that would have no news value and uh, would not inform my readers in any way, but would be useful in a private transaction between him and some foreign government representative. And I thought that was not my role. Uh, and I, I was alarmed at the idea that I would be uh, somehow a party to his effort to um, escape American justice. It would also have uh, required you to publish the entire set of slides, some of which were, uh, uh, I think, by everybody's estimation, too sensitive to be uh, uh, published. That's exactly uh, right. I want to um, uh, add something on that. Um, I'd already decided that I was yep. not going to publish the whole set of slides. And most of that decision was made without even consulting the government. There were whole chunks of it that showed identities of targets, um, the specific fruits of uh, surveillance techniques at this time and place against these people. These people were, uh, by anyone's estimate, uh, adversaries of the United States up, up to no good uh, from that point of view. Uh, and. I just wasn't going to publish stuff like that. So it was already out of the question for me to publish the entire document. And once I edited the document, once I redacted anything, then the cryptographic signature would no longer match. So it was a moot point uh, in practice, but the point in principle was important. So I'm going to ask, he's made some claims that I think are questionable. I, and I don't want to spend, I want to kind of just bang through them and ask you uh, maybe uh, uh, how many Pinocchios you would give them, or none, all the way up to pants on fire. Um, uh, five of them. I can wiretap anybody, the Supreme Court, the Gang of Eight, Nancy Pelosi, anytime. Um, true, false? Uh, unclear, but mostly true, actually. Uh, the He had direct access to uh, many restricted compartments, uh, in different jobs that he had, uh, one as a top-level system administrator, another um, as an infrastructure officer, inf infrastructure analyst, uh, working for the uh, uh, the National Threat Operations Center. Uh, that is to say, he could go into an interface called X-Key Score, uh, which is just a display on your screen that uh, brings together uh, 
uh, multiple sources of collection, and he could enter any arbitrary selector into it. Now, if he said, "Give me president of what?" If he said <laughs> the selector is selector is uh, just who what what unique identifier you want to you want collection on. It's usually an email address, but it doesn't have to be. If he had entered, um, you know, POTUS. If he had entered a uh, movie star, some conspicuously, obviously in, inappropriate target, uh, that would have been found either in real time or more likely after the fact. Uh, but to say that the restrictions in place were guaranteed to stop a guy like Snowden is a bold claim, uh, considering that he was able to make off with uh, so many secrets from the world's preeminent, you know, signals intelligence agency. Uh, there are ways that you could put in a selector. Uh, you could hash the selector, for example, so that to the naked eye, it just looks like gar garble. Uh, you can't tell that it is um, base sixty-four encoding for the name you're after. Uh, yeah, that would be clever. You're right. That would there would be some clever ways that you could sneak search terms in without them looking like search terms. Um, uh, although. You know, it, it, the likelihood you could get away with that in any significant way is must, or for, or for uh, any significant length say. of time, absolutely. Uh, but he, he, yeah, the, the things he did. Okay, he well, says uh, he said he raised. He, he said he raised objections to these programs and to the uh, lack of warrants for some of these this collection, and was ignored. True, false, uh, minimally true. He he. Uh, well, he says he had a lot of conversations at work, including with supervisors. Uh, those conversations are not recorded. I'm not shocked that they're not recorded. If I were um, in the NSA and uh, some guy had come up to me and talked about how worried and concerned and uh, and uh, unhappy he was with a lot of what was going on around us, and I had not reported that, and then it later turned out that that guy is at Snowden, I'm not sure I'd be eager to volunteer it. Uh, so he, 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 he might have, he <laughs> might have had some of those conversations. Um, he, he, he didn't have them in writing. Okay. Um, he, he seems to think his leaks didn't cause any national security harm. Really? I just can't buy that. Uh, I know it's something he says. I think it's, it, it, it seems important to him uh, to make this as clean as possible a case of uh, public interest in disclosure and no harm done and so on. I know I would want to say that. Uh and it's also true uh, that there has been little, little or no effort um, to, by the U.S. government to specify particular concrete cases in which harm has been done. But to do that would be to release more, more classified information and, and would be to tell targets um, where it can't see them or when it reacquired them. So there wouldn't be that kind of evidence. I simply can't believe it's possible that so much... Uh, information about the SIGINT architecture could have been released without damaging collection. Uh, but I will say that there are there's damage and there's damage. There are many kinds of damage, and some of them uh, are 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 not the kind of damage that you could reasonably object to um, in principle uh, if you're the government. That is to say, if the public finds out you're doing something and doesn't like it and acts to stop it, uh, for example, by putting pressure on private companies to increase security and privacy, and then the private companies do increase security and privacy, is that is that reckless damage to um, intelligence collection, or is that society and free markets and democracy operating as intended? Uh, and so a lot, a lot of the damage came because allies were pissed off to find out what 
uh, the U.S. government was doing because consumers didn't like it and companies responded because uh, voters didn't like it and Congress uh, responded with uh, the USA Freedom Act, which somewhat restricted the operation of the metadata program and so on. This is, this is how society operates on purpose. Yeah, it's, I, it, although, you know, the... Uh, the bleeding victim of that is the ability to uh, 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 to collect this information without people knowing that every time they uh, they use Gmail, they are subject to surveillance if they are a target of the United States government. And you know that you'll never get back. It would be better if we could find a way to have that debate. As we were having, um, you know, Senator Wyden was having that debate in as close to a public fashion as he could. Uh, now, I, did you ever ask uh, 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 Snowden about that? Snowden claims to have been watching uh, uh, Clapper when Clapper uh, uh, said uh, that he uh, uh, you know, made the misstatement about uh, the program uh, and, um, and that it influenced him. It obviously didn't. He'd already gone down that road. But did you ever ask him why he didn't view the fact that Wyden was saying the American people would be very surprised at the legal interpretations that are being used that allow collection of a large amount of information about Americans. I think it's wrong. Uh, clearly, there was a debate. It was happening below classified uh, uh, information uh, uh, lines. Uh, and it's only because of Snowden that it became a public debate. It's not clear that uh, Wyden would have lost that debate over time. Well, <laughs> it was a pretty restricted public debate. It was Wyden saying literally, if the American people ever found out what the NSA was doing, they would be surprised and they would be distressed. Uh, those are close to his actual words. He was not able to help the American people find out. He was trying to push the boundaries. He was trying to use unclassified uh, briefings and public hearings uh, to push the government uh, to show a little more leg. Oh, he was begging for the leak. He was begging for the leak. He may well have been. <laughs> well, in that case, then in that case, you would say that Snowden responded. I, and that's not exactly the way it happened. But but he was saying, I want this out in the open, and you won't talk about it, and you should talk about it. And that's that's uh, that was that was him saying, there's a vital public debate that's not happening, and that I can't make happen. And I'm I'm trying around the edges, but no one could seriously suggest that we could have uh, we could have had the public conversation we have had uh, without the concrete information being being uh, put in the public domain. Fair enough. I, we we couldn't have had the public conversation for sure. I I think that they had the conversation inside the intelligence committee, and uh, Snowden should have known that com that. A conversation was going on, and to suggest that the, you know he had to do this so there could be a conversation is wrong. Uh, he made it public, uh, and uh, that's what's controversial about uh, what he did. But uh, look, I, I I've taken enough of your time. This has been terrific. Uh, uh, let me last question: Have you started on another book, or are you uh, still in the stage where you think oh, maybe I'll never do another? <laughs> Well, there's always that feeling when you're uh, when you're when you're writing that uh, God, I will never do this again. It reminds me of when I 
was on a bad second string, you know, college rowing team, and uh, right in the middle of a race, you would say, "Well, I, I don't know why I ever agreed to do this," and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, get <laughs> exactly. me out of here. Uh, so it'll take a little more time for that to wear off before I head to a next book project. But this one, you know, is is a is a real life spy story, and I it's a narrative, and it uh, it it gives you a, a a real behind the scenes look at how the leak happened and how I handled it and and what the meaning of the leaks really was. So I, I, I sometimes, I'm not sure this is politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, um, it's as close to childbirth as uh, men can get in the sense that uh, you never start on the next one until you've forgotten the pain of the last one. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, my, my, my sense is you've got you know, you've got a beautiful baby, uh, and uh, uh, after you've had people admire it for six months, you can start thinking about the next one. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll take that advice. All right. Thanks, Bart. Uh, Bart Gelman, uh, that is uh, a dark mirror, uh, and uh, um, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Uh, uh, let me finish up by uh, asking uh, our uh, listeners to send us email at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Bart Gelman, Evelyn Dweck, uh, Nate Jones, and Nick Weaver for joining me on episode 318 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, if you would do us a favor, if you like this, uh, uh, leave us a review because that's how people find us uh, on whatever you use to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, and join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Mm-hmm.